BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You look at the past mayors that we've had and and they're all authoritative sort of people. And, and, you know, I get the sense you're more you're closer to this than I am, Fran, but he he doesn't, he's not out in public with the media so much. He kind of stays back from us. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. Believe it or not, another action-packed year has just about gone by in the world's best news town. And we're here again today to take a look back with two of the best reporters Chicago has to offer, both of them at the Sun-Times, I'm proud to say. Political reporter Tina Svondelis and investigative reporter extraordinaire and super sleuth Tim Novak. Thanks for joining us, guys. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Let's start not at the beginning of the year, but at the end with the federal corruption trial of former Chicago Alderman Ed Burke the longest-serving city council member in the history of Chicago. And we're starting there because the long-awaited Burke trial is now over, and the fate of Ed Burke, who is approaching his 80th birthday, is now in the hands of the jury. Tim, how do you expect this verdict to go? Um, Guilty. Just plain and simple, guilty. Plain and simple. I've sat through some of the testimony. I've actually read all of the exhibits. And I've done my own share of stories and investigations on the alderman over the years. And uh, he's charged with doing what we always believed he did. And that was to kind of uh, strong arm people into hiring his law firm in exchange for whatever they wanted out of City Hall. Tina, what about you? Um, well, just as Tim has been closely following this case, I very I followed and I covered the comment for case. And I do believe what I have learned this year in all these federal corruption uh, cases is that prosecutors really believe that they are going to get guilty verdicts on all of these. And they have plenty of evidence and witness information to try to get that. Basically, I don't believe they are bringing these cases without thinking that they are going to find all these people guilty. But they are pretty confident. They wouldn't even try it if they weren't sure of it. They wouldn't even try it. Yes, that is what I learned from covering that trial. Now, the trial, at least to me, was somewhat underwhelming in that we did not learn anything that we didn't already know going in. The four schemes that Ed Burke was accused of, allegedly muscling the developer of the old main post office to hire his law firm, specializing in property tax 
appeals, holding up the Burger King driveway permit in his 14th ward until they hired him, the pole sign at the Benny's Beverage Depot on the northwest side, and the internship for his pal Terry Gabinski's daughter that never happened at the Field Museum, prompting Burke allegedly to threaten to hold up the admission fee hike for Field Museum patrons. All of these things we knew about, and even the dramatic moment when FBI mold Danny Solis, the former alderman, the former zoning chair, strolled into the courtroom to confront the guy he turned on, Ed Burke, uh, it was not anything that we did not expect to happen. Uh, Anybody surprised by anything in this trial, Tim? No, it it was pretty uh, run-of-the-mill material, and we'd written about it so much over the last five years. We explored it. We uh, found out everybody involved. We'd written those stories. We we had past experiences to draw upon. This is, you know, this is what he does. He, you know, somebody comes before the city council and he wants their bra business, and for us, it's it's we're, maybe we've just been so accustomed to it over the years. The question is, how does it affect the jury? Who most of these people on the jury, sad to say, don't profess not to know much, if anything, about the news in our uh, metropolitan area. So, um, will they see this as corruption? I I don't know. I I think so. I don't really know how else you could see it. Pina, I think that the ultimate uh, the ultimate nail in Burke's coffin, if he does go down, is going to be the tapes, his own words. There's no getting around the greatest hits of Ed Burke. Did we land the tuna? Could you recommend the? Uh, why don't you recommend the good firm of Clafter and Burke? Uh, if uh, they, good luck getting on my agenda. Uh, they can, as far as I'm concerned, they can go F themselves. Things like that. The greatest hits of Ed Burke, unvarnished, when he didn't think anybody was listening and looking, not the the very proud and uh, arrogant and proper Ed Burke that we saw in public, but the other Ed Burke that we saw in public. Not just the tapes. But the smile, we saw a smile during the, the videos. I mean, it's not a good look the for smirk. him. We saw his smirk, his, really, his, really, the not smirk, a smile. Yes, like a trench coat, you know, his signature trench coat on the back of the door. It's just, it's pretty, I, I found that to be pretty damning. And again, what I learned from the jurors from Combat 4 is that, as you said, these people might not be following the news as closely as, as we are following it because we are a part of it. But there is a general perception that politicians are corrupt. And if that is true in this case and and these prosecutors are mounting all this evidence and the tapes and the video of the smirk, um, it just looks pretty damning for Burke. Were you surprised that he did not take the stand in his own defense and really that his defense essentially centered around attempting to muddy up the turncoat Danny Solis and to say the, the government was ashamed of him. That's why they didn't call him. We had to call him. Did it work? 
I, I don't think so. Um, you know, there's, the, I don't know why the government didn't call him. I didn't really think they needed to based on the tapes. It's, you know, maybe Danny was, uh, Solis was trying to get Ed Burke to do certain things, but it wasn't like he was pulling and pushing him to do it. He was willingly um, trying to win these people's business, if you will, a, a strong arm. I don't really know any other way to say that. Well, also, so we know that Solis wore a wire against the former speaker, Mike Madigan, who was on trial next year. And so perhaps... You know, that's maybe that's even bigger. Whatever they got on him, they're saving saving him up for for that. I don't see the benefit in Burke taking the stand. I do think that he has to trust these expertise of these lawyers. I do think things do go wrong. Think about in the combat. I'm sorry, I keep on bringing up combat, but it's all related in some ways. That Anne Promajori took the stand, and that was horrible for her. She really yeah. she tried to paint herself as this, you know, very good school girl kind of character and it backfired on her some of the things that they learned on the stand so i do think lawyers just think that's that's a bad move to have the defendant on the stand and the idea of it taking one to know one the fact that somebody sleazy nails someone else who's sleazy or wears a wire or informs on somebody who's sleazy it takes one to know one and so it juries don't seem to hold it against the government when they use somebody who got caught up in their own mess uh to get someone bigger who got caught up in their own mess allegedly do, do they no, and they'd always try to paint that, uh, like, well, any real-life trial, any TV trial I've ever seen in my life, I always try to say, and you, know, you did this because you were, you know, we're going to be charged with something. You are saving yourself. And they always say that on the stand, and it doesn't seem to really make a huge impact on the jurors. And Burke's attorneys admitted in their closing arguments that, well, he has a temper, and he didn't always say the right thing, you know when they played the tape of his comments about Jewish lawyers and Jews hiring Jewish lawyers. Um, that was not flattering of Burke, obviously. It wasn't the prim and proper Ed Burke that he the cultivated that he cultivated as far as his his uh, his his uh, public reputation. And so they even explained away that kind of arrogance by saying, well, you know, he didn't he didn't always come off the way he wanted to, and he was arrogant, and he had a temper, and, and so on. But he's not a crook. Uh, so we'll we we'll, we'll see how how long this jury is out, and how uh, quickly they return whatever verdict they have, and whether you're right, Tim, that it turns out to be a guilty verdict. Uh, the comment for you keep referring to uh, Tina. That ruling has a problem in the sense that there's some case in Indiana. Tell, tell us about that. Sure. So uh, this week we learned the sentencing of the comment four would be delayed. Um, they were supposed to be individually sentenced in January. Um, but the a judge yesterday um, ruled that they are, they are delaying that. There is not a new date. There will be a new sentencing date, but they are kind of tr trying to wait for the Supreme Court um, decision on an Indiana case. And the provision is about whether um, there, you can criminalize gratuities. This is the exact provision. Whether a section criminalizes gratuities, payments, and recognition of actions a state or local official has already taken or committed to take without any quid pro quo to take those actions. 
So they're arguing that that was a huge focal point of the Combat 4 case, and also for Madigan, whose trial is set to begin in April. Should that be delayed as well while they await the Supreme Court decision? Because both of those cases are about that very thing. Is that a real threat, Tim? I don't know. It's just so astounding that, that so instead of calling these bribes now, we'll call them gratuities. Um, do you have to, is it 20% gratuity? Does it depend on the size of the contract? It, the fact that a contractor can, can give a quote unquote gratuity to someone who hired the contractor is crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. Even in a place like this. The story of I mean, we're all waiting for it. Sorry, I was just saying we're all waiting for something to for some sort of shoe to drop with a Madigan case, and this might be it. Yeah. The story of the year for Chicago was the defeat of Lori Lightfoot, the election of Brandon Johnson, and the start of this new and most progressive mayoral administration Chicago has ever had. I saw this one coming. I predicted that Lori Lightfoot would be eliminated in round one and that Brandon Johnson would come out of nowhere to win this election. You saw that coming too. Were either of you surprised by this? And if so, why? Oh, it's hard to be surprised by anything that happens around here, isn't it? But um, he just didn't seem to have, Brandon Johnson just didn't seem to and still doesn't seem to have uh, the ability to govern at this point. It, it, it's just, you look at the past mayors that we've had and, and they're all authoritative, assertive people. And, and, you know, I get the sense you're more, you're closer to this than I am, Fran, but it, it, he, he doesn't, he's not out in public with the media so much. He kind of stays back from us. And so there's a lot of things that have, that have, um, that have gone on that seem to have been handled ham-handed. And that would start with the migrant crisis. It just doesn't seem that he knew what to do there. And I suppose one could argue that it's a unique situation and no one's ever had to deal with that before. But Lightfoot had COVID and she had um, the George Floyd protests. So every mayor gets something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't I don't like the blame game. You know, I'm tired of hearing him blaming the governor of Texas. We know this. This is an old story already. He's putting people on buses. He's going to keep them more, more buses flowing as we get closer to the Democratic convention in Chicago. He feels that, okay, you're a, you're a sanctuary city. You're a welcoming city. Fine. Here they are. We can't handle this influx anymore. You can understand why Texas is completely inundated. And so he's dumping the problem on somebody else, and that's a cynical political ploy. Okay, what else is new? This is not new. It's been going on since August of last year. We've spent $136 million, and we just this week had a five-year-old die at a, uh, at a warehouse in Pilsen, and he's blaming other people for that. Now, these people are now in the city of Chicago's care, don't they owe it to these people to at least offer them health care or whatever? Isn't it in part Brandon Johnson's responsibility, Tina? Well, the, as you said, this has been going on for more than a year. We got the warnings. We, we were told by these governors, by both uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor 
um, Greg Abbott, we were told this was happening and it has happened for more than a year. And instead we're getting this right. Nobody really wants to take this permanent responsibility for the, for this crisis. Um, just all the fighting between the state and the city as we've reported and there is no kind of long-term solution it's just kind of patchwork like as we've reported they they don't have a plan for food for january for two weeks for migrants so they're treating this as if it's just like this bothersome temporary problem when it's not it's it's a it is potentially a long-term problem and just 33 percent uh, actually 33 percent of the electorate turned out to elect brandon johnson 17 percent of them elected him so you can understand how the new machine, otherwise known as the Chicago Teachers Union and its affiliated United Working Families and SEIU, that their money and their foot soldiers controlled this very small election where a very, very small group of people in Chicago elected Brandon Johnson. In the first seven months of his administration, he has ticked several major items off his progressive to-do list. He put a binding referendum on the March ballot asking Chicago voters whether or not to authorize the city council to raise the real estate transfer tax on high-end property transactions to generate what he hopes will be $100 million to combat homelessness. He's phasing out the sub-minimum wage for tip workers. He convinced his city council allies to approve the most generous paid leave policy in the nation. And yet he has struggled to handle the migrant crisis, which has exacerbated historic political tensions between Blacks and Hispanic and strained city resources and strained tensions with, with Governor Pritzker. So how is he doing, do you think, in the first seven months? Tina? I think, as you said, I think the migrant crisis is kind of his pandemic to Lori life. And obviously the pandemic is much larger than this, but uh, he has not dealt well in the PR value of this all. Like, as Tim mentioned, he does not want to talk to reporters very much. When he does, he kind of admonishes them or is argumentative. Uh, you don't get a lot of answers. His statements that are released from the mayor's office sound very scientific and technical in many ways, um, it's not really like relating to reporters, to people, to even to other offices. So I think that is a struggle that he's encountering. Um, and so I think there's something about that, that this argumentative kind of attitude of I don't really need to do this or show how I feel or how I'm going to do this, that is kind of working against him that he needs to work on. And what about you, Tim? What do you think? I mean, he, he doesn't answer direct questions. He tends to uh, have a lot of words signifying not a whole lot because he doesn't address the question. There's a bit of a passive aggressiveness to it. Uh, he might say, thank you for the question, or he'll chide a reporter in very sarcastic terms, always with a smile, not as mean as Lori Lightfoot, but still an, a defensiveness uh, that belies, you know, maybe I don't have the answer to this question, so I'm going to be aggressive. I, you know, I, I I just think the whole administration is like that. I don't see think that you get a lot of answers even from his staff. Um, it's a lot of. Uh, um, I've had phone calls that have gone unreturned. I've had phone calls that were returned, but the responses were never given. Um, it's just. It, 
I don't know if it's just a new administration. It's certainly a different administration. Um, I think past administrations wanted to try to control the message, to control the media. He seems to want to ignore it. Yeah. And I don't think that serves him well. Any, I don't think that serves anyone well. And Fran, does he have a media team currently? I feel like he has one person kind of running the show. He has a very small team, and that's another part of the thing that's been very surprising. He has been very slow to assemble his own team. You know, he has Rich Guidas as his chief of staff. He brought in uh, Christine, Christina Passioni Zayas, who is the former state senator. Uh, he's got some of uh, uh, deputy mayor for uh, community safety and Gary and Gatewood, a couple of other people. He has a financial team, but there are there are department heads who have either been held over or there are vacancies. It's been a slow administration to turn over, which is surprising. And again, an indication that he really wasn't ready to govern because he probably maybe didn't even expect to win. Well, he had his Chicago Teachers Union support and they are indeed helping him during this first year slash probably all years. And so I think that, yeah, I, I do think that he was not in a high profile position as Cook County Commissioner. He, as you said, not a huge chunk of the city actually elected him. And he's in this extremely high profile role where people are watching what he's doing every day. And it's, he seems to be having difficulties. And then we had the forced resignation of Carlos Ramirez Rosa as the mayor's floor leader and zoning chair because he got too, uh, too you know, muscling in trying to stop that uh, special meeting on the Sanctuary City resolution. They didn't want to put that on the ballot. What surprised you about that and the fact that so quickly he went through a floor leader and a zoning chair? Tim? That was just jaw-dropping that, that it seemed like it was completely out of control, that no one could have foreseen, they should have foreseen this. Um, the, the, um, it, it just, it was astounding that, that the mayor let it happen. It was uh, astounding that uh, uh, the alderman couldn't see this happening. And, and I don't know which one looks worse in this, but they look terrible. And they had a, Johnson had a save Carlos Ramirez Rosa from censure by one vote because he cast that vote, that tie-breaking vote. I have to talk about, and a year in review will not possibly be concluded without talking about the hazing scandal at my alma mater, Northwestern University, that led to the stunning firing of head football coach Pat Fitzgerald, the subsequent lawsuit that Fitzgerald filed to try and keep his job, along with lawsuits by a host of players, the criticism of Northwestern President Michael Schill, who at first said he would only suspend Fitzgerald for two weeks and then had to turn around and get rid of him very quickly after the Daily Northwestern, another alma mater of mine, uh, disclosed more details about this hazing scandal. And then to add to that, the resurrection of the Wildcat football team under the leadership of David Braun, who then turned out to be coach of the year and earned himself a permanent job. What surprised you about this whole story? 
that the, that they were able to like actually like pick themselves up and cross the goal line in the end um, after all that mess. But what surprised me the most was that Fitzgerald was trying to like um, distance himself from it at the beginning. I it didn't. He was denying that this was happening, which you can't do. Yeah, there was just way too much smoke. Well, I found it hard to believe since he was a player there. These kinds of things seem to be, you know, uh, things that go on for decades. It's just handed down. So I, I, I never bought that he didn't know. And how about you, Tina? Well, there's all these super high-profile people involved in this, like Maggie Hickey and Dan Webb. I, I guess I'm impressed at uh, that things actually happened. Sometimes I just feel like, oh no, I, I know there's a PR element too. You have to take actions, but it seems like they did things pretty quickly. They made changes pretty quickly. Um, they filed lawsuits pretty quickly. Um, and so I guess that is what I was kind of impressed with in this scandal. Do you expect Fitzgerald to win his lawsuit? I mean, Michael Schill didn't, exact, didn't exactly cover himself in glory. That's the thing is, is what Tim said is he's going to have to prove that he did not know about these things, which I don't know how he would prove that. And is he's suing for a lot, a lot of money. I think it's $130 million um, against the president and Northwestern. So it's going to be a really interesting case. And Michael Schill has also been criticized for his handling of the political atmosphere and tension on camp college campuses in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war. So he's under the gun, Tim. Yes, but the Fitzgerald's lawsuit will be settled. They'll, they'll reach a settlement. That'll never go to trial. And they're going to cough it up, Northwestern, with the big all the money that they have? You think they'll cough it up for Fitzgerald and cough it up for all these plaintiffs and just have an endless dream of settlements? Probably. I it's think that's probably, what happens in these cases. You have to stop the bleeding. And if you take this to trial, the bleeding doesn't stop. It, it, it's amazing. It Do you think that Michael Schill, you know, there's some donors who have threatened to pull their donations from Northwestern if they don't get rid of Michael Schill. Do you think he survives? In the end, no. No, you I don't, think he'll you, you think long term he does not survive. He's only been there about a year. Well, you know, somebody's going to have to take the fall. I mean, right now, Fitzgerald took the fall. There'll be Somebody will have to take the fall for when this is all resolved. The selection of Larry Snelling as police superintendent, another very important story and obvious choice for Brandon Johnson. Really, he had no other choice. This, this man uh, has a persona. He has the experience. Uh, he inherits a department where murders and shootings are down, but robberies are spiking. And people in Chicago are scared. What's going to happen with Larry Snelling and his regime and the success or failure of the police department to get a handle on this? Tina. Brand, well, they always talk about how violent crime is down. Any politician in Chicago and Illinois, just any Democratic politician is always saying things are better. Um, but as you hear these stories about robberies, I hear a story from friends like every week or two of one of our favorite bars being held up um, all across the city, in different areas of the city. So these things are affecting people, even if you're not in the bar getting held up. 
you hear a story about, I heard a story about a 23-year-old bartender having a gun held to her head last week at a Wicker Park bar. So these are the types of things that are just affecting everyday people that he's going to have to deal with. I know that he has made assurances that with, uh, you know, filling vacancies or hiring more cops could help with these robberies, but it, he's going to have to prove that because these people just seem to be hopping in cars and going down major streets and going to different bars and or even just in the middle of the street. Um, like I live in Logan Square and I don't really walk at night when it's super dark anymore because I don't want to be held up. I'm not caring very much. So there is a fear element that he's going to have to deal with. And that's very hard to deal with. And I think the it's it's high time that they revisit this whole issue of no chase, no, no vehicular chase, no, hardly any foot chases, probably none because you have this balancing test and everything. And the, the police officers are not doing it. The, the bad guys know it. And so they're just going around the city with impunity, knowing that once they the hightail it out of there, nobody's going to chase them. Don't you think so, well, Tim? Well, this bar that I'm sorry, this bar that I was talking about, they have a panic button, but it takes eight minutes for cops to come by, which is a pretty good response time. But these people are going in and doing this in like a minute and a half. So it's just, it is really hard to catch these people. Tim, what do you think about the pursuit policy? Um, well, you know, the pendulum swings and maybe it will swing back because um, people are, um, people don't feel safe. And that's the number one thing that you cannot quantify. And you, numbers don't matter if you say crime is down, crime is up. It's how you personally feel. Do you feel that it's safe to walk around your neighborhood? It's safe to do this, or is it dangerous to do that? The numbers don't make any difference to you if, if something has happened to you or you just have this uh, perception that uh, you can't do certain things anymore. And, and there are people who have stopped doing certain activities because they don't feel that uh, it's a wise thing to do, which is very unfortunate. And I don't know how you stop it. I don't know if those policies, if, uh, if we... Uh, Backing off those policies will help. You know, some people are waiting for a new state's attorney. I don't know if that'll do it either. Um, the crime issue has been raging since the George Floyd protests, and people are, um, I think, at wit's end. I think so, and I think that sometimes you hear Brandon Johnson talking about the reduction in murders and shootings, and it makes it sounds like Lori Lightfoot. She couldn't sell that case. People felt unsafe. David Brown was a failure as her police superintendent, and Brandon Johnson needs to get a handle on this, too, or he's going to pay a political price for it, too. The governor says the same things every time he has to talk about robberies in Chicago. He just they go to the one good stat or the multiple good stats. There are great there are improvements, as I said, in violent crime, but they don't have a solution to this. No. And this is the thing that that makes you afraid to leave your house or afraid to walk down the street or afraid to go to the bar. Uh, before we yeah. go, a couple of sports stories. The Cubs firing David Ross and hiring Brewers manager Craig Council. That was a stunner. Anybody? <laughs> Talking to a White Sox girl right now. I'm literally wearing a White Sox hoodie right now. So, Tim, oh. 
Um, <laughs> you can't be a baseball fan and not be surprised by this one. I, I, I was surprised that they dumped Ross, but but you know, there's you know, uh, who who did they dump when they hired Madden? They dumped uh, Renteria for Madden. The, the Cubs seem to like a a, a, a marquee manager like that's going to make a difference or, or they sell it to their fans that, you know, we got the guy, we're going to win. I don't know. Well, it signals, you know, the fact that they made council the highest paid manager in all of baseball and paid a ton for him, stole him away from the division rival brewers tells me that they believe number one, that council is the best manager in baseball, that it, it, it will give you a couple of games, you know, managers do their strategy does win maybe eight, nine, 10 games a year. And that could be the difference. Plus the fact that it signals that they're going to spend money. Now they didn't win, um, uh, the, the, the free agent sweepstakes, uh, for the for the best well, player in baseball, tried. yeah, but but they're still in the market for somebody, and who knows how they're going to improve the team. But I think it signals something about the tight-fisted Ricketts family that they're re- ready to cough up, you know, and start spending some money. And this team was close. This te- team was close to making the playoffs. They died at the end, but they they are they are a team that's on the verge of something. Um, the death of Rocky Wirtz was another breathtaking thing. He was 70 years old. Nobody knew he was sick. And it, his death leaves a huge hole on the business landscape of Chicago, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Rocky was uh, um, a civic treasure. I mean, he was the most beloved owner in this town, even though his team had a lot of issues, you know, there was the, the sexual abuse scandal a couple of years back. And he, he, he made some uh, mistakes in handling that, but nevertheless, he was um, a beloved figure in town. He was, uh, he sat among the fans. People could talk to him uh, at, during the game. Uh, he's always had a kind word for someone, um, just a remarkable person. And he used to help uh, our paper keep going. So uh, he was a, right. He, he had a, crossed into different different worlds, as you're saying, sports, business. He was an investor that like helped keep the Sunshines together, um, helped rally us. So just like very multifaceted human. Last, lots of charitable work also. He yep. really was yep. the real the real deal and his loss will be felt for a very long time. And finally, the Bears stadium quest. Where are we with this? Do you think they're going to end up in Chicago? The whole issue of the parking lot south of Soldier Field, I don't buy that for a second. There's no way they're going to get away with that. But do you think they stay in Chicago? Yes. You do? Where? Yes. Where? I don't know where, but... Soldier Field. Do you well, really think I just feel every week spend is, all that money I, I, like Lori Lightfoot proposed? They're really, they keep on trying to get like state funds that are never going to happen. They're not going to get a deal. They're not getting anything. They keep on making, having these meetings with the different suburbs and not following through with it. I do think a lot of this is a scare tactic. 
Um, I do think that if you're going to get any money, and in the end, they will get money because everybody gets money, right? You get, we will pay to keep them, but we're going to pay to keep them here, not pay to keep them in Arlington Heights. Um, I think in the end, the state will put money up. Um, I do believe a couple of years ago, the governor said, I will not pay for them to leave Chicago. I, so I, I really think, believe they won't. I will bet you money on this one. But, and how's Brandon Johnson going to get away with subsidizing this when there are so many other needs that the Chicago has? Well, there's a money impact here. He'll have a huge hole if they do leave. So it is something that he needs to worry about. Okay, on that note, we're going to leave it. Um, uh, we covered a lot of ground here in sports and everywhere else. And uh, uh, and I'm sure that the, the coming year is going to be just as action-packed because we can guarantee it in Chicago, which is the best news town in the world, and we have the best staff in the world to cover it. So thank you both very much, and Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, and we'll see you all next year. Thanks, friend. Thanks, friend.